Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. And uh, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. It's great to have you all here today and, and great to have um, two fantastic panelists to discuss uh, the topic, which uh, has a recent, the, the, the uh, title of a recent Heritage paper, identifying and identifying and isolating jihadi Salafists through their ideology, practices and methodology. Um, my name is Robin Simcox. I'm the Margaret Thatcher Fellow here at Heritage, and I'm going to be uh, moderating today's discussion uh, between Mary Haybeck and Hassan Hassan. Uh, Mary Haybeck is a strategic planner and an expert on military matters, Islam and extremism. She teaches on Al-Qaeda and ISIS at John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and at Georgetown. Uh, Dr. Haybeck is also a senior fellow with the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Her publications include Knowing the Enemy, Jihadist Ideology, and The War on Terror. Between 2008 and 2009, Habeck was the Special Advisor for the Strategic Planning on the National Security Council staff, um, also formerly an Associate Professor in Strategic Studies at SAIS, and taught American and European military history in Yale's History Department. Uh, Habeck received her PhD in History from Yale in 1996. To Mary's Left is Hassan Hassan, a senior research fellow at George Washington University's program on extremism. His research and journalism focuses on militant Islam, nonviolent extremism, and geopolitics in the Middle East. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. Hassan is a writer at The Atlantic and co-author of ISIS Inside the Army of Terror with uh, a, a good friend and former colleague of mine, Michael Weiss which was a New York Times bestseller. Hassan has written for The Guardian, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, and The New York Times, and has appeared on CNN, BBC, Fox News, MSNBC, and PBS. A native of Eastern Syria, Hassan received a master's degree in international relations from the University of Nottingham. So two eminently qualified people to discuss this subject. I think what we're gonna do is have Mary uh, kickstart the conversation, um, Hassan will respond to some of those comments, then we'll get into the Q&A. So, Mary, take it away. Thank you. Um, first of all, please forgive me for being late. I just drove here from Ohio and uh, got it within five minutes. So, um, And, of, of course, uh, what did me in was 270, right, <laughs> right out here. All right, so um, first thing I'd like to do is talk about the genesis of this project and um, how I came to write it. Um, if you take a look at my background, I have a PhD in history, uh, military history specifically, but also a strategic thought. And during the 1990s, um, I got interested in ordinary Islam. 
uh, not the extremists at all. Um, in fact, uh, strangely enough, it was 9-11 uh, that got me interested in extremism. Um, so I'd spent uh, two full years before 9-11 reading about uh, Islam, um, history, fiqh, um, all sorts of uh, books, uh, probably 250 or so primary materials, and was teaching myself Arabic when 9-11 uh, occurred. And then I got interested in the extremists for some strange reason. Um, so I was uh, extraordinarily interested um, in uh, engaging somehow um, on the, the big questions that were raised by this horrific attack. Um, first of all, because as a strategic thinker planner, I um, understood this was going to cause um, massive uh, earthquake in U.S. Uh, policy uh, and in how we interacted with the world. Uh, but then secondly, uh, because I was interested in how everyone was talking about the um, terrorists who carried out the attack. So immediately after 9-11, um, there were uh, dozens upon dozens of articles. In fact, in December of 2001, I did a Google search on it, and there were 3,000 uh, different mentions of the phrase, why do they hate us, which a lot of people were asking themselves after 9-11. What I was interested in was how people were defining they, because everyone had a different definition for they. There were some people who were talking about the Middle East in general. Why does the Middle East hate us? There were people who were saying specifically Arabs or Arabic speakers. Why, do they, why does Saudi Arabia hate us? Why do um, the, the people that everybody called at the time Wahhabis or Salafis, why do they hate us? But uh, everybody had a different definition for they, and it actually wasn't the definition for they that I had in mind even from my uh, bare two years of, of reading on the subject. Um, I believe that this was um, a, a question that needed to be explored, and I immediately set about filling lots of gaps in my knowledge um, by participating in conferences, writing papers, getting my colleagues to critique my, my writing, and giving talks on uh, ordinary Islam and these extremists and the contrast between them. But I didn't write anything on it until this paper, so <laughs> it's taken 17 years. Uh, to finally uh, write something on a topic I've been, I'd been thinking about almost immediately after 9-11. Uh, uh, the reason is because I gave a talk um, all over this town and a lot of other places that I believed kind of filled um, this expert and knowledge gap that I sensed in the academy. So what was the gap that I saw um, at least back in 2001, 2002? Um, what I saw was uh, many of my colleagues were obviously far more expert than I was on the Middle East, had traveled extensively, spoke Arabic, um, had done lots of interviews and writing on the topic of the Middle East. Um, but uh, all of them, at Yale at least, um, believed that 9-11 had nothing to do with religion or with the rhetoric that was being used uh, by the attackers to justify uh, this horrific act. Um, on the other hand, those who did understand religion, and that was, uh, there were several um, religious studies experts um, who were able to talk to the sort of language, at least, that was being used by the attackers, really hadn't had a previous interest in current events or current affairs. 
So to them, um, the questions about religion were sort of esoteric, um, big thought questions and didn't have much relevance for current events. So there was this gap between those who understood current events and those who understood at least the language that was being used uh, by the attackers. And it quickly devolved into a question of, does this have anything to do with religion at all? Or is it really about something like uh, economics, poverty, uh, lack of opportunity, the despotic uh, regimes that controlled the Middle East at that time, um, many of which are now gone and replaced by, in some cases, nothing but chaos? Um, or uh, did it have everything to do with Islam? And in fact, there were, there were these two groups that began to argue with each other, not immediately, but within a year or two after 9-11, about the place of religion, and specifically Islam, in um, the lives of the people who carried out this attack and in their rhetoric and their ideology. Um, so after um, spending uh, lots of time being corrected by uh, people far more expert than I am, I finally published a book, which needs lots of revision, I've decided. You know, I go back and read it, and I'm like, well, I don't think that way anymore about that. <laughs> Chap whole chapter two needs to, needs to be revised. Um, and I realized that I, I really did need to write something on the topic that I've been talking about a lot, but <clears throat> really haven't written anything uh, since 2005, 2006 time frame. So the, the paper is, is um, hopefully going to fill a kind of gap in policy understanding of an issue that is extraordinarily necessary, in my opinion, for uh, today's debates, the debates that are going on right now um, in this town. And uh, what it does is it takes a look at uh, ordinary Islam and attempts to show just how extraordinary the extremists are. But it also makes an argument that the um, language that's being used by the extremists, as well as their lives and the people that they're recruiting, must be taken into consideration. And therefore, we cannot simply dismiss religion as somehow epiphenomenal or having very little to do with the motivations uh, for the people who are carrying out these attacks. Well, what kind of Islam are we actually talking about? Well, if you uh, delve into um, the writings of uh, the Sharia, so-called Sharia experts um, put forward by the extremists or by um, the leadership of, of uh, ISIS or al-Qaeda, uh, what you see is that they espouse a form of Islam that is so marginal and so um, different from ordinary Islam that I believe it needs to be called what it really is, and that is a cult. We're dealing with a cult here. It's um, a conglomeration, basically, of a very specific form of um, Hanbali uh, Islam, um, and uh, the form that eventually was called Wahhabism and then later Salafism. Uh, but it's a form of Salafism that is different from that espoused by the Saudi government. It's the form known as Sahwa Salafism. Um, that is, in fact, a um, mixture of Salafism and uh, Qutbi, um, Muslim Brotherhood thought. Uh, because Muhammad Qutb, Sayyid Qutb's brother, traveled to uh, Saudi Arabia after his brother was executed by the 
Egyptian government. For some reason, he felt the need to leave the country. Um, but when he went to Saudi Arabia, he was uh, granted a professorship at Abdelaziz University, where he immediately set about radicalizing an entire generation of young Saudi men. And amongst those um, young men that he interacted with personally was uh, Osama bin Laden. In addition, he created a form of uh, Qutbi Islam, that is, um, takes uh, a very extreme vision of Tawheed that's uh, propounded by um, some Salafis, and, as well as some other ideas like Hakimiya and others, and put them together into a new thing uh, known as Sahwa Salafism. But Sahwa Salafism would have gone nowhere without Abdul Azam, um, who added in the idea of um, a global jihad. And it's um, Abdul Azam plus Sahwa Salafism that really, in, in my opinion, equals um, jihadi Salafism, uh, the form of uh, Islam that I, I believe uh, deserves to be called a cult, um, and a death cult at that. So <clears throat> the important thing is that this kind of um, vision about the ideology that's being espoused uh, by both um, al-Qaeda and ISIS is generally um, ignored or was generally ignored um, by many experts in the region as well as many policymakers as something you really didn't need to take into consideration when thinking about how to combat the, how to combat the extremists. The thought was that's great for the local governments. This gives them some you know, hooks to use in their de-radicalization attempts or attempts to counter-radicalize. Uh, but really, why is that important for Americans, uh, American policy members, uh, 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 policy makers? Um, I would say that there's probably a, um, a dozen reasons why uh, this is significant and why this has to be sort of front and center in our thinking about the current conflict uh, with the extremists. But I'm just going to narrow it down to about six. The first and most important is we will not understand the actual war that's going on unless we understand the appeal that's being made by the extremists and what they claim is motivating them. That's the first and most important thing. The second uh, reason is we're going to fail to win over um, ordinary Muslims if we fail to take into consideration the appeal to Islam that's being made by these extremists. They are using very uh, technical, very uh, deep, deeply grounded religious language in the appeals they're making to ordinary Muslims. They're not uh, making kind of superficial arguments. They're, they can be deeply troubling for ordinary Muslims who want to engage with those who would argue with them and show why this is wrong. Why, for instance, the caliphate should not have been created. Why um, their vision of life in a caliphate is, is wrong. Um, so we're going to fail to win over ordinary Muslims as well if we um, as some um, policymakers, as well as some experts in the region, have uh, failed to make a, um, a clear distinction between the extremists and ordinary Muslims and have tried to argue that, in fact, the extremists are somehow reflecting true Islam or more authentically expressing Islam. So that's uh, deeply offensive. Um, to most people in the region and to most Muslims. And if, if we don't have an answer for that, if we don't have a way of arguing with that, convert, uh, that sort of language that's being used by some experts, I think we're going to fail to win over ordinary Muslims to our side. 
Um, so I think there's a, a bigger point here as well. By understanding the war, we're going to see uh, the war from the viewpoint of the extremists. And the extremists understand this war as an existential fight. They do not see it as a war of choice, something you can engage in and then withdraw from, something that you can, you know, one day say is, um, you know, all important for our country, and the next minute it's like, what's going on in Afghanistan right now? Um, they think it's an existential fight, and this means that they will do anything. They'll use any means, and they'll pay any price to win. Many of them have given their lives in order to win this war. Right? And can we say the same about ourselves? That we understand this is an existential fight, that we understand this is something we'd be willing to pay any price um, in order to win. Um, that means that there's an extraordinary asymmetry between us and our opponents. And until we understand them deeply and see where they're coming from and why they're doing what they're doing, I do not believe we can engage with them in the way that is necessary to actually beat them and win this war. Thank you. Mary, fantastic uh, summary. Thank you. And I would uh, encourage everyone who may not have read it yet to uh, read Mary's paper on the Heritage website, uh, identifying and isolating jihadi Salafists through their ideology practices and methodology. Uh, Hassan, over to you for your thoughts. So I have to say, uh, this is probably one of the first uh, papers uh, and framing of the, of the subject, uh, which I've been working on for a while, that is uh, so accurate and kind of gets the nuance of the, of the, of the debate, because it's, it's, uh, it's a delicate uh, subject that, I, you know, uh, as I found, uh, as I started moving out of the region into London and then and came here, I started to understand how it's, it could be problematic. Uh, because to me, I think uh, the debate, uh, again, personally, uh, was easier to have uh, in the region than here, for obvious reasons. In the region, you could say things uh, and people understand that you're talking about a very specific uh, ideology within uh, the broader uh, uh, environment and landscape. Uh, outside, sometimes when you say what's accurate and right, uh, there is uh, an effect to that that might be interpreted by some people as implicating ordinary Muslims who, uh, you know, the majority of reject these ideas and, uh, you know, even within conflict zones. No, we're not talking about uh, stable countries. We're talking about uh, war-torn uh, war countries, uh, not only that, but rebel forces who are in involved in violence who reject these ideas uh, despite uh, extreme circumstances within those. So as long as you understand this is a very specific, uh, you know, subject, uh, you start to miss uh, there, there's some problems there. But once you understand this is a very specific ideology within a broader context, uh, a uh, very narrow uh, one, uh, then I think uh, you also have to acknowledge at the same time that this is a problem. And this is a problem that has a, a religious dimension and that has to be tackled uh, through religious language uh, at, at the same time. So as long as you kind of maintain that uh, balance, uh, I think it's a nuanced, uh, very nuanced argument uh, and a very useful one, very practical. So uh, I'll, you know, uh, I'll touch on this, uh, some of the, uh, you know, points you make. I, I really liked how you framed it, uh, and uh, try to maybe use the Syrian and Iraqi context to see how uh, this uh, ideology, this particular narrow ideology, is practiced on the ground. Because uh, one thing is to understand what it is, 
And I think you laid it out very uh, clearly, uh, like the hybrid ideology between Salafi, uh, Salafism, traditionalism, uh, and uh, Islamism. And the hybrid, uh, or the hybridization comes from this thing, uh, from um, mixing uh, revolutionary ideas of political Islam with uh, fundamentalist rigid ideas of uh, traditional Islam. Uh, without that mix, uh, you won't have the same, uh, the same problem that we have with uh, Salafi jihadism. In fact, both political Islam and uh, Salafism uh, include some safeguards against uh, what, we, what we know as Salafi jihadism if they stay uh, clear and pure on their own path intellectual basis rather than uh, you know, mix and marry, and marry uh, with, the, uh, the, the, with the, the hybrid. But also to go back to the, I, the question of why do they hate us? Uh, also something I noted, uh, I noted back when ISIS uh, came to uh, prominence in 2014, I was at the region, uh, in the region at the time, uh, and I remember um, uh, the reactions in the region, especially in the early months. There was really an interesting, useful uh, kind of period to really go back to study because after that it became a blame game. But in, that, in the early weeks and months when, I, when people uh, in the region were watching and seeing how ISIS doing was uh, what, what ISIS was doing and how it was doing things, uh, and see the reactions for it. So the different the 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 the, the difference was after 9/11, uh, people uh, the question of why do they hate us? What's the problem? What's going on here? Uh, was coming from outside the region and was was asked at Muslim uh, was asked at Muslims rather than uh, it was a, a genuine conversation. At least that's a perception from. Uh, my re uh, our region uh, back in, back in the day, but the question after the rise of ISIS was really an inter-Muslim uh, question, especially in the early days. Again, when Muslims across the region, probably because of social media, because of the liberalization of some of the media there, um, people start asking questions: Where is this problem? Where is this problem coming from? We have a problem. So that was a recognition across the region. People recognized there was a problem with some of the traditions that the extremists use uh, and their interpretation of them. Uh, and I think that was, a, that was a genuine moment. It was an interesting moment that was not seized. And unfortunately, uh, quickly after that, countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, and others start to blame each other and uh, turn it against each other in political game, political blame game, rather than a genuine conversation. Uh, that should have been continued and seized, uh, going back to the roots. And I think uh, there's a byproduct of that, that there are, there are still intellectuals now who have powerful shows on YouTube, on uh, some media, uh, who are becoming more outspoken about some particular problems that uh, provided the intellectual basis for uh, those who uh, created uh, or uh, who introduced Salafi jihadism at some point. So Salafi jihadism, as you mentioned, it's an intellectual, it's, it, it, it does have what I call theological corridor into early Islam. But the, it's a very zigzag sort of uh, uh, corridor where they go from one thing and, and, and climb to another um, uh, cleric, and from that cleric they move to another one. So that's a very picky thing, but it's, uh, uh, but it's, uh, it's rooted in some of the traditions rather than mainstream, a very straight line uh, from there. So, uh, as you mentioned, Ibn, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah is, is a, a really intriguing person. Like, uh, I, I was introduced to him first year of university during uh, one summer vacation when I, was, when I had to rent with uh, 
some Sharia students at the time. I was the first time I heard about about him and his legacy and, and people like Sayyid Qutb and Muhammad Qutb at the time. And I still have uh, I kind of respect him as an intellectual because he's a, because he was the first, in my opinion, he is the first modern uh, intellectual, uh, religious intellectual within Islam. He, his methodology, the way he approached the text, the approach. Uh, religion was very modern, uh, mo modern methodology. So he approached it from that uh, from that uh, idea that I can approach the text and deal with it as a person, rather than use the uh, tr complex tradition way of, uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, compare context and see what's the context of that text. No, I can directly go to it and and so. And uh, interestingly, Ibn Taymiyyah comes right in the middle of Islamic history. So he's he comes from exactly almost the middle of uh, early Islam and present Islam. So he is that kind of middle middle way. And much of Salafi Jihadism is really the legacy of his ideas and then the ideas of Ibn Hanbal or the Hanbali uh, thought and uh, the students of Ibn Hanbal, Ibn Hanbal which, which were well interpreted by uh, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab uh, in Saudi Arabia or before Saudi Arabia was formed. And then uh, from, from that legacy, uh, some people took some of these ideas of uh, Wahhabism, what we know as Wahhabism, uh, and mixed it with modern, with the modern phenomenon of political Islam that comes from uh, first from Hassan al-Banna and other legacies in India and Pakistan, um, with uh, with uh, Sayyid Qutb who made it uh, more extreme, and then Muhammad Qutb uh, was the first to kind of link between the two. So I just kind of give you a concrete example. So Muhammad Qutb. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, let's say, Ibn Taymiyyah, the, the early cleric, came up with, uh, with an idea that was an original thought for him, a thesis, which was that for you to adhere to the true tawheed, the true monotheism of God, that to believe in the one, oneness of God, you have to uh, adhere to three criteria uh, within, within that. So, because he says pre-Islamic Arabs used to believe in God. But that's not enough. You have to believe in God, and then you have to believe only in God. You can't believe in another thing, associate anything with him, to, to, to kind of abide by the Tawheed idea. And then you have to have uh, very specific um, uh, features of the creed, so what God is and what God is not, and, and so on and so forth. So uh, these three uh, criteria were uh, Muhammad Qutb later on added another criterion to it, uh, but he, it's something that he took from his brother, Sayyid Qutb, which is the Hakimiyyah, which is uh, the only God uh, rule and, and, and uh, the, the rule of God and, the, and the, the, that you cannot implement anything that's not ruled and, uh, and uh, decreed by God. Uh, and that Muslims have to, be, to live under the rule of God in that sense. So he took the idea and he added it and called it uh, Tawheed al-Hakimiyyah. So he added a fourth uh, criterion to Ibn Taymiyyah's three criteria and called it Tawheed al-Hakimiyyah, means the oneness that, you, uh, that uh, in order to believe in one God, you have to also believe that only his rule, uh, you have to live by his rule, basically. Uh, and, and that's really, uh, a lot of people now, beyond even Salafi Jihadism, believe that that fourth criteria is mainstream somehow. So that's the danger of uh, seeing even Salafi Jihadism as a, a very monolithic, because it's, it's a really a salad, of, like it's a, it's, a, it's a combination of different things. Because within Salafism, which is, Salafism is an intellectual framework uh, that also you have to differentiate between Salafi Jihadism and Al-Qaeda and ISIS, because Al-Qaeda and ISIS are very specific jihadi Salafi or Salafi jihadists, whatever you call them, 
that really implemented so they are the applied Salafi jihadism uh, in that sense uh, within within the within a broader context. Um, so uh, w within Salafi jihadism, you have different uh, schools. They have like, for example, uh, a Syrian uh, cleric who uh, had uh, had a fallout with uh, with the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood. He was a Muslim Brotherhood leader, uh, and then he traveled to Saudi Arabia. He was a math teacher. Uh, so he settled in, north, in northern uh, Saudi uh, Arabia, uh, I imagine, uh, I reckon. And, uh, and uh, there he started to be influenced by Salafism. And, but, but also his disciples, his Salafi uh, disciples, started to also be influenced by his Muslim Brotherhood background, the Islam, uh, Islam thing. So he created a movement that we call today Sururism, Muhammad Surur, Zainal uh, Abidin. Sururism is a very influential one, but... Uh, Salafi jihadists use it as a slur word, even though it could be considered as part of that Sahwa legacy, uh, the Islamic awakening in 1979 and before and after. Uh, so, uh, so even even within that legacy, you have that, uh, diverse uh, sort of things. But it is it's a very specific, it's a very modern uh, approach to Islam that uh, approaches the text in a way like that's that's modern. That's why. Uh, kind of just want to add one uh, one thing because I, I do agree with all uh, you know what you said. So I just kind of wanted to, to add some some aspect to reinforce your argument. So uh, usually I ask questions when I speak to military people, for example, or others, uh, diplomats and others, uh, is to ask this question. But after understanding all this different co complexity, is what's your what's one's problem with ISIS? Uh, obviously. There are different problems, diverse problems. But in order to defeat this ideology, you have to know the specifics uh, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of this ideology and then understand that you have to isolate the different aspects uh, and then defeat them and approach them differently because you can't have one approach to them. You have to have different, uh, different approaches. So is the problem uh, with ISIS uh, the cut in hands of thieves or the stoning of women, adulterers, and so on and so forth, according to their, uh, leg uh, their uh, ideology? Uh, that's obviously a problem for many, but is that, that's a problem separate from uh, suicide bombing. Is your problem then political violence and the use of graphic uh, kind of uh, gory pictures and so on and so forth? Because if that's the problem, then you're talking about something else. You're talking about no traditional Islam. So if your problem, uh, again, uh, uh, just to kind of uh, make it clear, if, if the problem is the cut in hands of thieves and the implementation of these Hadood uh, penal code, then your problem starts to become more with traditional Islam. And I think uh, everyone recognizes in the region that we need to go and revise and study how we can move away from what Saudi Arabia and Iran and others are doing uh, and, and kind of implementing these gory, old-fashioned sort of penal code that no longer uh, should no longer have a place in our modern society. Uh, that's a conversation that is a purely Muslim conversation. It has to be dealt with, and it's a serious problem. And... Uh, it's not something, a subject for us in D.C. and elsewhere. It's actually something that Muslims and Muslim clerics in mainstream uh, places talk about. But they have to be tread carefully, obviously, because uh, that uh, borders apostasy when you talk about how just to ignore them. And then if your problem, uh, the other problem, which I think is bigger and affects more people, is the political violence, the sectarianism, sectarian violence, political sectarian violence. Uh, the suicide bomb, and then your problem then with political Islam. 
with groups like the Muslim Brotherhood and others and so on and so forth. But it, it shouldn't be approached in the same way. You can't just ban them, for example, or something like that. It has to be a different nuanced approach that's more holistic, but you have to uh, start with understanding that it is contributor to the problem. You can't just say they are, uh, they say, oh, we're peaceful. It's, that, it's like the difference between a hate speech uh, a preacher who says, I'm not involved in the violence, but I say these things, it's my freedom of speech, and then one of my followers go and kill someone else because he heard me something like interpreted in a different way. You can't blame me for my follower, my, my, the, the worshiper who attended that mosque. No, there is that link. You have to understand that the preacher is part of the problem rather than a separate uh, issue. Uh, unfortunately, nobody, many people uh, don't like that idea because they think it's a, it's a very extreme right-wing sort of idea right? or, or uh, an Egyptian idea or something, you know, like they associated with extreme approach, but it's not. You don't have to kill them. You don't have to imprison them. You have to recognize first it's a threat, and then we can talk about how to deal with that threat, but you have to understand that it's a threat. It's part of the problem. Uh, because, uh, and I'll give you an example just to go back to um, one last point to make of how uh, Salafi Jihadism is a modern or modernist uh, in terms of a pro uh, modernist ideology in terms of approach and what's the link between that and suicide bombing. Uh, so I give you, uh, again, uh, for me, if you, if you have like a, a mainstream established uh, religious establishments like Al-Azhar, institution in Egypt, or say, uh, even established Salafi organizations in, say, Syria, Iraq, uh, Iraq, or in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere, the mainstream sort of, say, uh, linked to the government. Uh, they are, they're usually resistant to uh, change because they are opposed to both liberal Islam, progressive Islam, and to extremism at the same time. They, they don't like these two. And, and my, my argument is always that the progressive Islam or progressive uh, clerics or Muslim, uh, Muslims are progressive, but they are religious and uh, uh, extremists and hardliners and, and jihadists, they actually have more in common with each other than the, the extremists have with the, with the mainstream religious establishments. In terms of approach and methodology, the methodology of the progressives uh, it's actually very similar to the uh, methodology of the jihadists. They use the same methodology to approach the text. The difference is that uh, one uh, uh, uses it for violence and one uses it for modernity and progress, uh, progress and so on, progressiveness and so on and so forth. So I'll give you one example to that. One last point is uh, uh, Yusuf Qardawi. In, uh, he's, he's kind of considered the spiritual leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, so for 90, 95%, probably 99% of his views are very progressive. They're modernists. They, they say Muslim women could, you know, could take off the hijab if they need to, uh, and so on and so forth. He, he has fatwas uh, that are, that are more, more permissive, allow people to do things than prevents them from saying things. So he's known to be a modern progressive uh, cleric. But he is, he, unlike the Salafis, says it's okay to blow, uh, blow up yourself uh, in suicide bombing uh, to kill Israelis uh, in the beginning, and then he said that, uh, uh, expanded to Syria as well. So uh, how do you reconcile? A lot of people say that's an aberration of his views, but in my opinion, it's actually very coherent with his method methodology. The, re the same reasons that allowed him to say it's okay for a Muslim woman, for example, to take off the hijab, 
uh, is the same, it, it relates to the same methodology that allows him to say it's okay for you to kill yourself for, uh, for something because he based his ideas on pragmatism. Uh, on on this un, uh, idea that we can approach the text and the, uh, the text is here to make people happy and make people prosper as long as they abide by the, the essentials of uh, of uh, you know of being a Muslim uh, as an identity. So I think it makes perfect sense for someone to say this and say this uh, rather than for a Salafi to say this and say. So a Salafi would, uh, without without an exception, all Salafis who are truly Salafis say suicide bombing is forbidden because they say the text says you cannot kill yourself. Uh, uh, the hadith says it very clearly, so how can you uh, jump before that? So Yusuf al-Qadawi says, yeah, the text says that, but the psychology of a suicide, of someone who commits suicide because he's depressed is a different psychology to someone, the psyche is different, uh, from someone who kills himself in battle. He says, because I understand the different uh, this is a different. This is a different situation from this. He just um, issues a fatwa based on his own interpretation of the text, rather than goes to the literal uh, part of the text and say, "No, the hadith says you cannot kill yourself because if you kill yourself, you will roll in uh, hell for for eternity," as as the text says. So, uh, kind of end with that. Hopefully, that's clear. Fantastic, really fantastic. Thank you, Hassan. Um, before we uh, get into the Q&A, and, and there's a lot of questions. I mean, there are really a lot of questions that those presentations throw up. I, I'll kick off. You guys have just laid out this incredibly complex, intricate, nuanced understanding of ideology, of faith, different understandings of, of a particular faith and all the variations within that. I think there's one thing that you could say that is it's not easy for... Uh, leaders on the world stage to do sometimes is to translate complex, intricate, and nuanced thought into sound bites that are digestible to the average voter, right? Your average American, your average Brit, whoever it may be. All the post 9 11 presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and now Donald Trump, have all taken kind of, well, I think quite pronounced different approaches as to how they discuss this issue, which has been obviously a, a, a bigger issue at various times throughout the 9-11 period, but it's all, I don't think it's ever been that far from the mind of people in the US. I mean, terrorism remains a, a key issue and, and this, in, this area remains a, a, a key one people are interested in. So if you were to give any advice to leaders who have to talk about this issue on the world stage, I mean, where on earth do you start? I mean, what is the way into this? Uh, so the one of the purposes of the paper is, oh, sorry, one of the purposes of the paper is uh, to have a conversation not just with policymakers but with ordinary Americans as well. Uh, because in my opinion, the biggest uh, challenge that we've been facing is that um, most leaders of, of, of the American government have punted on this issue because they feel uncomfortable talking about it. They don't think that they know enough to be able to have a conversation knowledgeably about these intricacies. And so they're, they're, they're using very sort of 
uh, simple kind of frameworks, either it has nothing to do with Islam at all. I remember very clearly George Bush um, saying right from the start, this has nothing to do with Islam. Um, Islam is a peaceful religion, a religion of peace. And basically, we're not going to talk about Islam. And um, although that changed, he had great difficulty understanding what he was dealing with because the experts were all over the place. So we'd have one expert come in and say, yeah, you should use the term Islamofascism, mm -hmm. you know, or you should, uh, you know, use the term radical Islam, or you should use, there were, there were, you know, a dozen experts had a dozen different propositions for him. And usually presidents are not expert on anything more than one or two issues, right? And they leave everything else to uh, the experts. And in this case, the experts were it was impossible to come to a consensus about what uh, what he was probably being told. So he um, tried a, a little bit of, you know, let's talk about Islamofascism, let's talk about radical Islam, let's talk about violent extremism, and then kind of gave up on it. And so the, the message that came across to ordinary Americans was um, the government is covering up what's really going on here, or something like that. And there's something more going on. After all, all the people who are carrying out these attacks say that they're Muslim and that they're doing it because they're Muslim and for Islam. So there were a lot of Americans then who were open to, excuse me, those experts who were saying things like, this is all about Islam, or these guys represent the most authentic version of Islam. And um, what they're doing is what, you know, all Muslims would really like to be doing, or something like that. Right? Mm -hmm. So I, I thought right from the start that the, the problem was a problem of just knowledge, of people not knowing enough about the topic to be able to speak knowledgeably from the top to the American people. So it's not a matter of finding some kind of magic phrase. It's really a matter of just education. Um, on the other hand, under Obama, the decision was made to excise religion entirely, and Islam was not even going to be part of the conversation. And that also was not very helpful because people were now making up their minds that, okay, there is something going on here, but the government doesn't even want to talk about it. And now they really cut it out of the conversation. That was a lot of people were saying that. So I feel that that, again, was not very helpful just to, to say it doesn't have, it has zero. And, but you also saw when uh, Donald Trump began to talk about this and was making a kind of broader sort of um, assertion about what we're dealing with here, that this was uh, radical Islam, and radical Islam was apparently a lot of things, you know, included Shia versions of Islam all the way over to, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood, but other forms of Islamism, uh, Islamism as well. You, you got the sense that this is like this big thing, this broad thing. And there were a lot of people who said, that can't be right either. There's got to be some other explanation that's going on here because otherwise we'd be dealing with, you know, millions of suicide bombings and millions of Muslims in our country are, you know, rising up and engaging in violence, and they're not. So, uh, again, there's this kind of rejection of, of what the president's saying. And I think, again, it has to do with um, you know, from the very top, an unclear message, and unclear because I think the president and his advisors themselves don't really have the background 
to be able to have these knowledgeable conversations with the American people. Okay, Hassan, if you had any thoughts on that, and then we'll uh, kick it open to you guys. Sure. I mean, uh, we all noticed that when uh, the, uh, President Trump uh, said radical Islam, it just disappeared. Uh, we saw that uh, uh, at the time. But um, I think there is, uh, so it's uh, only half facetiously, I think there is a value in saying, uh, in recognizing, not saying it, but in, in, because it turned into kind of a polemics uh, rather than anything else. But uh, by recognizing what, uh, the, where the problem is and where uh, people, where different groups and movements uh, contribute to the problem. I think that's a, a very important starting point. Uh, I don't think we're, we're there yet. Probably with this administration we started to, to have it. The problem is for the wrong reasons. Uh, if it was done by, uh, by people who really genuinely want to kind of uh, help uh, people on the ground, the moderates, to build something different, then I think uh, it can go uh, it can go a long way, uh, and and we can we can kind of benefit from the uh, post uh, 9/11 campaign against the finances of extremism, because I think uh, that campaign, which continued say for like uh, for a long time, but like for the 10 years after after 9/11, uh, when the Arab Spring started, uh, I argue that the CT part of the campaign uh, after 9/11, not the occupation of Iraq, not Afghanistan. Uh, not the wars, but the campaign, the CT campaign that followed, actually, in my opinion, saved the region uh, from a, a greater jihadi takeover than what we saw in 2011, uh, 12, uh, 13, 14, in different parts of the country. You have to recognize that that, that that part was successful, the finances, going after preachers, knowing who's who, and so on and so forth. That really was effective. Uh, the sad reality is that the other problems also created, exaggerated the problems. But if you assume that history uh, would repeat, would be, uh, would have the same events like the Arab Spring would have happened in the same way, uh, then I would, I'd imagine, without the CT element of the post 9/11, I think the situation would be a lot bigger than uh, than what we saw over the past few months, uh, few years. Uh, and I think that. Uh, uh, concretely, again, I think uh, what the U.S. should be doing is really to tighten the screws in the same way they did with the finance uh, campaign, is to go after preachers, hate uh, preachers, but not in the way that uh, would help countries in the region to crack down. But because what we saw after 2014 is that some countries start to build in centers, but these centers are just token for show. They they have it uh, somewhere in uh, someone's ca capital. Uh, it doesn't really do any real job, but it has a fancy uh, name and it's part of the global coalition, it's helping the global coalition, but it's not really doing anything. And instead, they should have done it uh, with private uh, private individuals, with civil societies, and with the private sector. If these people, uh, if, if, that's, uh, that, if that approach is, is done, I think it could go a long way, because on social media, you find individuals, I know people, and all the people who don't uh, get a dime for doing whatever they're doing, but they're so passionate about going after the extremists. You know, if imagine if they support those that organize and train them and, and help them to say whatever they say. You have clerics who are under so much pressure to, to change their tone because it's no longer uh, financially viable for them to continue on that path of criticizing extremism and so on and so forth. They won't be accepted in some media outlets, right? So by, by, by making it uh, okay for someone to criticize extremism comfortable, uh, exper expertly done, I think there's, uh, there's a lot to be done there. Uh, but it shouldn't be government. That's why President Obama or Trump or others should not 
engage in these things because they are presidents. That's not their job to say uh, what's the, like uh, you know wh whether Islam is part of the problem or not. I think it's someone else's job. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, right, we've got about ten minutes, I think. Um, why don't we start? Question, gentleman at the back. Good afternoon. Thank you to the panel. Uh, my name is Arash Shatra. I'm a uh, intern here at Heritage. Um, so I just wanted to ask you about uh, Mr. Hassan about um, how Washington diplomats should not be involved in sort of cultural matters, right? Because you know they're skirting with problems like blasphemy and and other things like that. Um, but what about um, international educational institutions, um, which serve as a megaphone for the world's worst human rights violators to not only cover up their own human rights abuses, but to slander and just totally lie about the only country in the Middle East that has any values that we would deem acceptable in a modern society. Um, people at the UN are not diplomats. Um, these people are working in an educational institution, and they're able to influence the hearts and minds of millions of people around the world. So if this kind of stuff is incentivized, um, why would any reformists have a chance in countries like Saudi Arabia? I want the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia to succeed. I see him as a reformer, but he looks like he's under a tremendous amount of pressure, and he's not really able to maneuver because of the, the risk to first probably his life, but um, the, the whole society, because this, this is allowed to keep being shielded okay. at the UN. Who wants to uh, – tough, interesting week to talk about Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah, what should I say? <laughs> Can I just be careful whatever you say? <laughs> uh, so I just want to say in general, uh, because I, I kind of disagree with the, with the framing, especially the last part, uh, but I do think that uh, terrorism is used as a tool by governments to suppress and repress. Uh, that was something that was done before and after and, after and actually undermined the effort to and terrorism. Unfortunately, the U.S., the way the U.S. Uh, network of interest uh, in the region is impeding that. That's why they don't speak about uh, w when they need to speak and they speak when they don't need to speak in uh, matters real related to human rights and so on and so forth. I think uh, so there are different ways of looking at the region, but the pessimistic one is uh, that this region is getting is heading to something much worse than we saw over the past few years. ISIS will be uh, it doesn't it doesn't have to be the same problem. ISIS, that's a kind of a paradigm that we saw over the past. It could be something more could be collapse of states and other things. Right. Uh, it doesn't have to be violent uh, set of jihadi organizations. Could be something uh, destabilizing that's worse than uh, what what we saw over the past few years. And I think the U.S. can. There's so many so many tools that the U.S. could do uh, through uh, things that they also have experience with, which training uh, people to uh, engage in these things on on a, the, on, on a local level. A civil society is, is an important thing. Something uh, the U.S. has neglected over the past. Uh, in recent memory, uh, you know, they abandoned uh, because, uh, you know, they ha would have problems with Egypt or they would have problems with Saudi Arabia or they would have problems with other neighbors uh, of Saudi Arabia. So that's okay. kind of the vague part of it. Thank you. And um, why don't we take – oh, I'm sorry. Please. So um, I'd, I'd just like to follow up because I, I see that, um, as usual, I've sort of skipped a step. 
so I, the, one of the purposes, as I said, of the paper is uh, to act as a kind of um, educational tool for just ordinary uh, Americans to um, get a little uh, knowledge about uh, this very difficult topic. But it's also obviously designed for policymakers um, to help them um, find some language to be able to talk about a very difficult topic. Mm. So the purpose of the paper is to make the argument that you don't need to talk about Islam, except to talk about ordinary Muslims as being the vast majority of Muslims out there. It's really to talk about the extremists so that they can place them for the American people where they deserve to be placed, as a cult. And I think that kind of language could be very helpful for policymakers. Use the term cult. To talk about how marginalized they are and how extreme their ideas are within the broader world of Islam. It opens up a conversation that I think actually the American people want to have. They want to know where are these guys coming from and why they're doing what they're doing. And people are sort of self-educating. They've been reading stuff in order to figure out what's going on. But the experts, as I said, are all over the place. So you basically can find somebody who says it's you know, this is what Islam is about. And you can find people who say this has nothing to do with religion at all. It's all about economics and other sorts of issues. And this is to provide, I, I hope, some insight into the way that the extremists understand themselves and the way that most people in the region understand them as this cult that needs to be marginalized and understood as attempting to actually hijack the entire religion and transform it through a new ijmal into their their image. So I and I think that'll be that would be extremely helpful for the American people if at, from the very top they would hear this kind of language about these guys. Yeah. We've got time for another couple of questions. We're not at two o'clock. Why don't we take the three of them together because I can see three people. So Sir on the front and then two people in the fourth row back. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ahmed I'm a diplomat at the Embassy of Jordan. A country that is well known for its, you know, efforts in countering terrorism, and I assume that everyone, you know, should be aware about the efforts that we, that we do, uh, especially in the long-term, um, you know, efforts to to fight the ideological aspect of of the of terrorism. Um, just to um, Hassan's point that it's an inter-Muslim. Uh, you know, dialogue. We say we say in Jordan it's a civil war within Islam. I just want to, you know, uh, throw this, you know, and 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 I'm sure that you're, uh, you know, um, the Amman message and the interfaith dialogue initiatives that were established uh, and kicked off in in Jordan um, that shine a light on 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 how to. Um, you know, to um, educate the world about modern Islam, about the true values of Islam. My question is, um, you know, is is are these initiatives? Do you think that these initiatives uh, took their, uh, you know, right to be well, you know, uh, circulated uh, in, in in the United States? Uh, you know, um, have they like uh, impacted the, the, the public opinion? Um, Thank you. Then there's a gentleman there, and then uh, lay next to him. I'm Thomas Gorgisian, a journalist and a writer. Uh, my question is, Dr. Habak, uh, because you took us back 17 years and said, 
you started with the state of mind of ne neglecting and then paying attention to what's going on. After 17 years of pushing the issue or trying to understand what's going on, it is, and you come to conclusion somehow at the end that still we are somewhere of nowhere. I mean, it's like, uh, excuse me to say that. Do you think that what was missing, what is missing in general in these 17 years that it's stuck? Is there is a lack of understanding or not readiness to understand? Somehow, this related question, because both of you mentioned somehow you are facing, uh, fighting terrorism or whatever in this cult way or whatever. And you are talking about talking to military people and policy makers. Uh, how you can, I mean, I, I mean, better understanding of this cult, that how it helps military people to shoot them or not shoot them. You know, it's like, because at the end, you know, at the end, drones and other ways, means and are used instead of, I mean, they are not changing their mind and we are not changing our policies anyway, more or less. Okay. Thank you. And then I think, we've, yes, please. Oh, and I'll also take yours, sir, and I think we better do it. I think that better be the end. Thank you. Hi, I'm Deborah Weiss, and I'm actually a 9-11 survivor from New York. Um, I'm just I'm having trouble formulating the question, but I'm just wondering, you keep talking about extremists and Muslims versus Islam, and from where I'm sitting, it sounds like you might be conflating people versus the ideas. I do understand that there are a lot of people who call themselves Muslims that eschew the violence, but the, I, that wouldn't necessarily mean that the ideology of Islam isn't a problem. And many people, including here, seems to be defining, quote, extremism as violence. But I would say that if you can't have free speech or you can't do, a, you know, the Hudud punishments, I mean, that's to... You said that's part of Islam, and that seems extreme to me. And the final thing I'll just say is, since Muhammad, who's supposed to be the exemplary man, was a soldier and a warrior, um, I'm unclear on how you can leave that out of the equation when you're making the assessment. Okay, and then, sir, and then, and okay, since it's the last one, we'll get you in as well. It's going to be five questions. They're all going to be quick answers. I mean, terrific. Uh, subject matter, frankly, I wish we were going for another uh, hour. Um, and both of you summarized it, but what you did, in my view, was you added to the ongoing muddying of, of the waters. Dr. Hebeck calls it a cult. Mr. Hassan, I think, very correctly brought up a, a fundamental point about the religious aspect and the religious aspect of the Muslim world needing to handle that element on its own, but I would ac actually like to have both of you comment on a fellow who's put forward a lot of really, I think, very relevant material, Dr. Zudi Jasser. He's got a website. He's been very forthcoming in stating that the religion of Islam needs a reformation. And you talked about it, Mr. Hassan, and, and I, I think that, that Zudi's right, because I've read a bit of the Quran. I've read a little bit of the Hadith, a little bit of those other, other holy books, and when I see in the Quran, take neither Jews nor Christians as your friend. When I see in the Quran, slay the unbeliever wherever you find them, 
and then I read what Osama bin Laden, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi say, which is they are committing, it's the obligation of every Muslim to commit jihad in order to put forward Sharia law throughout the world. I have to ultimately believe what those guys are telling me, because they're okay. telling me what's on their mind. Great, thank you. And uh, final last question, sir. I'm sorry to cut you off. We've got a lot to get through. Sure. Um, so, well, my name is Rock, and I'm actually one of the co-founders of a Muslim tech startup, Yarn Muslims. Uh, my question is very simple and easy. Um, earlier, uh, earlier was uh, we had spoken about how the world leaders are having a bit of a hard time grasping the idea and addressing the ideas of and how to discuss political conversations and the conversation about the, about this topic and other topics. So my question is, is that don't, if if it is already hard enough for the world leaders to grasp this con content, then what about for the average American like myself or anyone else? Um, you know, as in, so I guess the question is, should we kind of change the conversation, not having it with the policymakers, but having it with the average Americans via media outlets? So, you know, if any follow-up questions do arise, they're more properly addressed. And then the policymakers, clearly who we can see are influenced by media, can approach it from there. Got it. Okay, Mary, why don't you kick us off on any, any or all of which you wish to take on? Boy, I get the, this is like several days' worth of conversation. Yeah, but, um, just, uh, just very briefly <laughs> on, on the last point you made, I don't think it's an either-or. I think we, we need to be – everybody needs to be having this conversation. So I affirm and support what you're doing. I think it's – I would love to hear more about it afterward if you wouldn't mind. Um, so um, – uh, so actually, uh, the question of what's lacking in this effort, I think, is is apparent from the conversation we're having here. There's a, a lack of, of common knowledge and common agreement about what we're dealing with. You can see that. So uh, the problem, I think, is also there's a uh, – there's been a polarization of American elites – and a polarization of the American people. We find ourselves here and here, and we hardly talk to each other anymore. And we we choose. I know I've got my list of websites that I I read, and I know who the other guys are and who what they're saying, but I don't want to read their things, right? And it's we're living in places where we don't even have to talk to people who are different from us, right? Because we we've. We've uh, made our minds up in some ways about these issues, and it's very difficult even to have a conversation anymore in the U.S. So that's what's lacking is a, is a common, uh, and I've, I've said this in other contexts, so just from a strategic viewpoint, the biggest problem, in my opinion, that the U.S. is facing is um, elite disagreement. So we have at least three or four elites in the United States who disagree profoundly on every single issue, economics, national security, America's place in the world, the military, you name it. They disagree profoundly with each other. And we've seen one take over and take us one direction, one take us a different direction, and there's at least a couple more elite groups out there. And the American people are trying them out one by one to see which one they think is helping our country. <laughs> and, you know, take a so to me, the biggest problem that we're facing is this. And each one of those elite groups has their own views about uh, Islam and about the extremists. And they've been either having a conversation or not having a conversation based on those views. So um, 
the, the question of, isn't this really what Islam is all about? Islam is whatever Muslims say it is. It, there's a thing called ijma, the consensus of the community. My people will never agree on an error, uh, Muhammad said. So you're talking about a religion that defines itself by what the majority say it is. This is what they're attempting to do, the extremists, is convince everybody that their version of Islam is the right way forward. They're going to take everybody off in that direction. And they're having that conversation every day. They're winning over recruits. They're attempting to shift the entire religion. So you talk about a reformation. Wasn't it Luther that wanted to take everybody back to the original founder? But was what Luther proposed actually what Jesus said? Was what Luther thought Jesus said? Yeah. So what's going on here is it's not the 7th century we're talking about or the, even the 8th or 9th They hate those centuries. The extremists hate those centuries. The Umayyads, oh, they wish they'd all fall over dead. <laughs> oh, they did. <laughs> they hate those guys. What they want is the 12th century. Everything's perfect. Everything was right. The 12th century is what they want to go back to. They don't want to go back to actually Muhammad. No. Seriously, no. So the, the point about this is that this, you could say this is the Reformation. Osama bin Laden et al., that's Luther, right? And the Saudi officials are sort of like the Pope coming to uh, the U.S., who, by the way, are the Sultan of the Ottoman Caliphate, and saying, can you help us with our Luther problem? Well, obviously, we can't. This is the problem of engagement. Obviously, we can't. We can't engage on that, right? Uh, the sultan of, of the Ottoman Empire. But on the other hand, you know, very rich, powerful guy, maybe facilitate help from behind the scenes, yeah. but also with his own people have the right kind of conversation about what we're actually dealing with here, right? Because Islam did go through its enlightenment, you know, in the late 19th, early 20th century, and there was a consensus, a new consensus, a very modernist in its approach that developed. And that's what these guys hate, the new consensus that developed. You know, you can go back and you can take a look at Kabul University. Kabul University in the 1960s and 70s, girls in miniskirts, very modernist. Same thing was very true of Egypt. You can watch the transformation as it's, it became a modernist university, Cairo University, and then as the Islamists made an argument that Hey, all these modernist ideas have led to corruption, immorality. We've lost our values as a people. We need to go back to the 12th century. So the argument is, is, is this ongoing argument. One of the things that complicates it and makes it more difficult is um, many Muslims believe we tried modernism. We tried the Western way, and it led to corruption. It led to immorality. We lost our values as a people. So maybe we'll give these guys a chance. Sam, any yeah. concluding remarks? Let me actually leave it with that thought because I think she, she said it very well. Uh, I just want to emphasize that it's uh, there is this. Oh, the mic. Uh, I, I do think there's a civil war going on, and uh, we have to recognize that since 1979, that's when the problem started. Uh, uh, you know, some people misframe it as. Uh, 
as if there was no problem before that. But what I'm saying is that's when the evolution of uh, modern revolutionary uh, Islam, not not Islam, uh, it's a kind of one part of a big, big, big uh, picture uh, that's been uh, affecting both Shia Islam and uh, Muslim Islam. It's not just uh, you know with the Khomeini revolution, with the siege of Mecca, with the rise of Salafi jihadism, with the Soviet invasion of uh, Afghanistan. Uh, you know, f- uh, the, there are several major factors that happened in that year, 1979, and then that—that's when the, something started. Uh, started that was new, that was modern, that was rev- you know, a, a new, a new in that sense. Uh, but it's a dot in a, in a big, uh, big picture. Uh, I, I am one of those very few who say there is a problem there, uh, because that problem is is, is framed in religious uh, language. Uh, and if it's left without dealing with addressing it head-on, uh, it will have an erosive and corrosive uh, effect on, on the bigger picture because they are argu- making an argument uh, that could develop and evolve into something bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, we've seen it becoming bigger since 1979. It's now bigger than it was uh, since then. Uh, things emerged out of it. Uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS emerged out of that. Uh, and uh, but it, again, I want to emphasize that it's a very specific, very narrow uh, trend. Uh, but it's a it's a destructive uh, trend that everyone, all of us, uh, have have a stake in and kind of uh, dealing with it, dealing with it in a more uh, composed, uh, not like in a way that's uh, combative. But all of us are uh, have a uh, uh, have a stake in and kind of reducing that that because even uh, you know I studied ISIS very closely, I interviewed them and so on and so forth. Uh, even within ISIS, the religious factor, in my opinion, that leads people to join ISIS is only 20, 30 percent of what uh, lead people to join ISIS. So imagine that. That's very specific. ISIS is, is, is a minority within the extreme, the Salaf, it's, uh, the terrorist sort of uh, part within Salafi jihadism that's uh, uh, bigger than both the terrorism and ISIS. Uh, and then bigger than that is the Salafism and the political Islam, and then the real Islam, which is a lot bigger than that. Which is so. What I'm saying is just to emphasize that it's a very particular problem. Every time you go closer and zoom in, it's a, it's a very narrow, very specific problem. But it's a problem. Well, thank you. I think we'd all agree it was a real, real uh, privilege and a pleasure to be in the presence of two such genuine experts on this subject. I thought it was a fantastic conversation. Thank you for all coming, and please thank you. Uh, thank Hassan and thank Mary. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. I need to follow up with you. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, in touch. Uh, you're based in Ohio? Yeah.